Susan, butcher box to the rescue. The other night we had some friends over for dinner and we had no idea what to make. And I was like, guess what? We have a freezer full of meat. So my husband went down and thawed out some chicken from butcher box and made the best cocoa van that we've had in a long, long time. Yeah, you'd have been screwed without butcher box because I know you ain't got no time to go to the store right now. That's true. I don't have time to go shop for meat or pick out the meat or find the best quality, low priced meat. So butcher box does all of that for me. So true story, my husband's workplace has a Slack channel called Smoked Meats. And I know you can't like win a workplace conversation, but he is now because with ButcherBox, his great cuts of meat to the door, they can cook up and take photos of for his workmates. I love ButcherBox and I think other people would too. ButcherBox is the ultimate convenience, delivered right to your doorstep, free shipping always, with curated customized box plans. It's 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork, raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood. There are a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value with exclusive membership deals. They also provide recipe inspiration, guides, tips, and hacks. Sign up at butcherbox.com proof and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional 20% off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com proof and use code proof to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When, when did Lee's name start coming up? When did you first hear that? Lee's name really come up when uh, Wayne had told us Charlie, Charlie. had seen yeah. him that night. Yeah. Amanda and Kenneth, Brian's sister and brother-in-law, told us that it was Charlie Childers who had first made them think that Lee Clark had been involved in Brian's death. Charlie and his brother Wayne were family friends of the Bowlings. They had been at the Bowlings trailer watching TV with the rest of Brian's family when the shooting occurred. Glenn Clark, Lee's father, explained to us why Charlie was so important to the prosecution's case. Their theory is that Charlie Childers was standing at the glass door Looking outside, the theory is he saw Lee running across the front yard. That's how they say they put Lee at the scene. Their theory is that Lee was at the bedroom window. He shot Brian through the window, throw the gun in the bedroom, and run off. This theory about Lee Clark being outside of Brian's bedroom window is based entirely on Charlie Childers. There is literally no other evidence that places Lee there. But what exactly does Charlie say he saw that night? This question is harder to answer than you might think. The thing that confuses me about Charlie is, so he's the only one who puts Lee at the house, right? Yeah. Is that right? And do you guys feel certain that people can understand exactly what Charlie's saying? They had to bring in some special person for that at court and everything because I can't understand him. Some things you can get a sense of what he's saying, but I don't know. His sign language was basically not the sign language that you're taught now. They they brought in some special person at court. Hi, my name is Susan Simpson. I'm an attorney and podcaster, and previously I hosted the Undisclosed podcast. Hi, I'm Jacinda Davis, and I'm a true crime TV producer. Last year, Susan and I decided to team up and reinvestigate the murder of Brian Bowling. Along with Kevin Fitzpatrick, president of Red Marble Media, we decided to launch Proof. You can listen to Proof like you would any podcast, 
And you can follow us everywhere with the handle at ProofCrimePod and on our website, ProofCrimePod.com. Thanks for listening and welcome to Proof. On the night that Brian was shot, Charlie Childers and his brother Wayne had been at the Bowling's trailer. Brian's uncle remembers seeing both brothers there when he rushed over after receiving a call telling him that Brian had been shot. And when you got there, Wayne and Charlie were both just, do you know where they were sitting? Charlie was sitting on the couch, uh, and Wayne was standing in the uh, bedroom doorway. Did you communicate with them at all, or? No, not really. I was kind of pushed through, you know. Were you familiar with them? Oh, yeah. So yeah, you... I grew up with them, so. Yeah, he he's deaf, he speaks sign language, but they're like really country people, and they've kind of learned their own sign language. It's kind of like sign language slang or something. Even though Charlie and Wayne Childers had been at the trailer the night Brian was shot, Investigators didn't speak to them until seven months later. The first record we have of them talking to the Childers is from May of 97. That might be right. I mean, because I, I mean... Because right. it was I'm a while. You, it was, so, but that was a long time after. A long, yeah, a long time. Yeah. Like months. In fact, Wayne and Charlie were not interviewed until after Lee and Kane had been arrested for Brian's murder. Neither Amanda nor Kenneth remember talking directly to Wayne or Charlie about any of this. But they recall that someone in the Childers family had told someone in the Bowling family about Charlie seeing something important the night Brian was shot. They think it was likely Deborah Bowling, Brian's and Amanda's mother, who had passed this information on to Sergeant Dallas Battle and investigator David Stewart. Mom would have called them and said, y'all probably need to go talk. Talk to Wayne and Charlie. Mom probably did. Somebody, you know, Wayne had told somebody that Charlie had seen Lee that night. Sergeant Dallas Battle and Investigator David Stewart found themselves driving down to Silver Creek to speak to Wayne and Charlie. Sergeant Battle testified that they hadn't brought a translator with them. They hadn't known Charlie was deaf until they got there. So Wayne had been the one to translate for them. There wasn't a report made about what exactly Charlie had to say during this interview, but at trial, Battle was allowed to do something that witnesses are usually forbidden from doing. He was allowed to testify about what Charlie had said to him, which is hearsay. Double hearsay, actually. Battle couldn't speak to Charlie directly, so what he was testifying to was what he said, Wayne said, Charlie said. I was informed that Charlie could read lips if you were looking directly at him to a certain extent. And his brother Wayne told us that he could sign to him, sign language and interpret. We asked Charlie what he knew about that night, and he communicated to us that he saw someone run by the front window of the residence where the shooting took place immediately after the shooting. I communicated to him, asked him if he could identify who ran by the window. He said yes, or indicated yes. This testimony should never have been allowed, and the defense did object to it, but the trial judge overruled the objections and let Battle testify anyway. Battle went on to describe how, after Charlie told him about seeing someone out the window, he'd gone back to the police station and picked up a photo lineup. I explained to Wayne that we needed Charlie to look at this photo lineup, and if he recognized the person on the photo lineup that he saw go by the window the night of the shooting, we needed him to indicate what number it was. Charlie circled number two. Photo number two was a photo of Daryl Lee Clark. Thanks to Sergeant Battle, the jury heard that there was an eyewitness who had seen Lee Clark at the Bowling's trailer when Brian was shot. So case closed, right? Except there's something odd about Battle's description of this interview he had with Charlie Childers. One thing I do wonder about is how the police even got the story from him. Like, how did, how did they, how did they understand what Charlie was saying? The only one that can really understand Charlie is Wayne. And Wayne says he can't really understand him. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> so, Wayne can't, so Charlie can read and write to some degree. Yeah, 
Wayne can't read. Wayne can't read or write. Yeah. So it's not like they they can do that. Yeah. So and he doesn't speak sign language either. Sergeant Battle testified that he'd been able to interview Charlie because his brother Wayne had acted as an interpreter. But Wayne Childers also testified, and Wayne told the court that he couldn't really communicate with Charlie either. Not really, anyway. In fact, Wayne said when Battle had interviewed Charlie, he couldn't understand what Charlie was trying to say. So Charlie had written his answers down on a piece of paper for Sergeant Battle to read. And that piece of paper was still in the police file. Susan read to Dan and me what Charlie had told Sergeant Battle in his interview. Well, here's a page of notes. I think they're written by Charlie Childers. But Charlie can't write. He I think Charlie can write. On the stand, he said he never learned to read or write. He did say that, but I think he can write a little bit. Yeah. So the notes say, I am here, H-E-A-R, one room in looking window, night go to store, are out in phone, walk road, hour were in bedroom TV, night all walk road, car, looking is night, go to gate in house, I am looking cabin house, here. Maybe he was pointing at a picture and trying to explain. Story is talk, gun house in gun phone, bowling room bed night. Boy is walk in out through window. Go to store is house, live, live something. New Hope Church, car black, blue, Buick, Buick, black with blue. I ask in all looking talk policeman is park car. We will all time here, road all time. Night policeman road, please is true, all is good, black with blue. Rock Mart, Rome, morning and night. Thank you. Wow. Alrighty then. <laughs> that explains everything. Well, now it's all clear to me what happened the case here. Case is solved. Yeah. But the only name that's anywhere in that is Story, which right. is Kane, right? The name Story appears twice on the page of notes, or rather, the name Stosi, S-T-O-C-Y which is presumably Kane's story. But the name Daryl Lee Clark doesn't appear anywhere. One line of the notes does say, boy is walk in out window, but it's not clear if the boy being referred to here is Kane's story or someone else entirely. So these notes are somewhat confusing, but what about Charlie's testimony at trial? I asked Lee Clark what had happened when Charlie testified. What was it like in the courtroom when they were trying to talk to him, to Charlie? Oh, you, you ain't never seen a circus like this, I'm going to tell you right now. He's there signing. And he's sitting there, and he's up there one minute, he's saying that Kane's story was the only one there. It was just stories, just story. He was pointing at Kane, saying Kane was the only one, just Kane, just Kane. That's what he was saying for the longest. And they got, oh, well, Charlie, let, let, uh, we want to talk about what happened outside. Who'd you see outside? And he's talking about, oh, Kane, Kane, Kane outside, Kane outside. It's all over the place. I, you, I, you have to read his testimony. You get to read it, you'll understand what I'm talking about. When we finally got the transcript of Charlie's testimony, I did understand what Lee had meant. Without actually reading the transcript for yourself, it's hard to convey the sheer chaos of it. I can honestly say I have never seen another transcript like it. And just reading through it is somewhat excruciating. I can only imagine how much worse it would have been actually sitting through it and hearing it in person. Because Amanda and Kenneth had both been witnesses in this case, they hadn't gotten to see the testimony for themselves. But I told them some of what Charlie had testified to. There's a half dozen times they ask him to say who he saw that night, and he says story. Huh. See, we thought, I, I've always heard that he said Lee, that he's seen him running through the, the big flat, window, the big the, 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 the living, room. living room window in there. He's got a big window, and it, I thought that he said he seen him run right through there. That's what Dallas Battle says, but Dallas Battle can't talk to no, Charlie either. Yeah. 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 Hey, everyone. Before we continue with this episode, I want to tell you about another podcast. Have you ever wondered what it feels like to watch your house burn down or be attacked by an alligator? Or learn that your spouse hired someone to kill you? 
If you're dying to know, then What Was That Like is the podcast for you. What Was That Like is filled with real stories about the most surreal experiences of people's lives. On the show, host Scott Johnson dives deep with his guests into the unbelievable situations they found themselves in, like animal attacks, plane crashes, winning the prices right, and more. The show brings you tons of completely surreal, completely true stories, all told through the lens of the person who actually experienced it. Check out some of these episodes about wild and gripping stories to gain some insight on what it was like to, say, be a professional bridesmaid or lose a leg in a shark attack. Susan, I think you'd be a really good professional bridesmaid. And you'd be really good at losing a leg in a shark attack. Oh, gee, thanks. <laughs> so if you want to hear some disturbing, inspiring firsthand stories, you need to check out What Was That Like? Every story is thoroughly researched and fact-checked, so you know even the most bizarre tales are someone's reality. Listen to What Was That Like on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. If you're listening to this show, then I'm going to guess you're a fan of True Crime Podcasts. So in the mornings, grab your favorite mug and pour yourself a dose of spine-tingling true crime every a.m. with Morning Cup of Murder. It's a short daily show that's the perfect podcast to incorporate into your morning routine. In less than 15 minutes, you'll hear about a true crime that took place on today's date in history. Each day's dark history lesson will kickstart your morning with intriguing tales of murder, abduction, serial killers, cults, and more. So pour yourself a piping hot cup of murder every single morning with Morning Cup of Murder. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. In order for Charlie Childers to testify at trial, an interpreter had been brought in to translate for him. Her job had been to translate the attorney's questions into American Sign Language, and then to speak Charlie's answers back to the court. Susan and I went to speak to her about what the experience had been like. So when I, we walked up, I asked you if you remember being interpreter on a case, and you instantly said Lindale. Yeah, it was a, it was fairly traumatic for me. I mean, I tell us why. Like, what? At what point did you realize? Oh, you're... pretty immediately. You know, but once you're into this kind of situation, I mean, how do you get out of it? Um, and I was fairly young. Gola Burton is a state-certified interpreter for American Sign Language, or ASL. She became interested in ASL at a young age. So I grew up in Cave Spring. Um, both of my parents worked at the School for the Deaf. They're both hearing. Um, after I graduated from high school, I uh, became more interested in sign language. My dad was uh, head of the interpreter training program at Georgia Highlands, so I participated in a lot of his classes. So just growing up in Cave Spring and, and deciding that I wanted to be part of the deaf community. And Cave Spring has a... Has the residential school for the deaf for the state of Georgia. Cave Spring is the second biggest town in Floyd County, after Rome itself. It's at the south end of the county, not far from Silver Creek. And it's where the Georgia School for the Deaf is located. So the gentleman that I was interpreting for, I believe he was a, was a student at the School for the Deaf. And, um, and then he was isolated from the deaf community. He was not a typical deaf adult. His communication was not typical. If he had met another deaf person, he would not have been able to communicate with another deaf person very well. I wonder if the court just heard the witness's deaf and just like assumes he spoke ASL because I've told people we've talked to were like, oh no, he doesn't speak ASL. No, he, he didn't have, you can't label his communication style. He was home signs. He was. What does home signs mean? Okay, I'll give you an example. This gentleman told my dad, my dad was a teacher at the school, and this gentleman said, I don't need to learn sign language. I can, my son understands me perfectly fine. And he said, and he says, watch. Hey, Johnny, go over there to the truck and get my cigarettes and bring them to me. As Gola Burton was speaking to us, she demonstrated what the student's father had done. 
She pointed to her breast pocket, mime smoking a cigarette, and gestured over towards her car. Okay, that's not, none of that is sign language. It's like... Except I kind of understood it. Like You did. Well, you would have understood. Yeah. But, but that's, not, that's not ASL. That's gesturing. That's, that's gesturing. In court that day, much of what Charlie had been signing had not been language at all. It had been gestures that he used at home to communicate to his family. It's walking to a nightmare. Like, you'd think you're going to interpret someone's speech Well, and, and, and immediately the defense called it into question my ability, which shook my confidence a little bit. We showed Gola the transcript from Charlie's testimony so that she could help us try to piece together what had actually happened in the courtroom. Yeah, see, it just kind of, yeah, it definitely goes off the rails. As Gola reviewed the transcript, she pointed out to us that much of Charlie's testimony had been neither ASL nor home signs. Instead, it was something much slower. Evidently, he's, he could fingerspell, because I'm, I'm, obviously I had to spell the proper name. Brian Bowling, I had to sign that. What does fingerspelling mean? So proper nouns do not have signs, so you would have to fingerspell it, so I'd have to spell out each letter. So obviously... I'm trying to see if he has any speech, any lip reading. I'm trying to see if there's another way, you know, to communicate with him. I'm trying to yeah. get something from him through this. And, oh, see, he fingerspelled up here. That's the fingerspelled gun. And I, you know, now that I'm a little older and have a little more experience, I probably just sort of said, we can't do this, you know, in hindsight. Some communication with Charlie was possible. There were questions he was asked that he was able to answer. But Charlie's level of fluency doesn't seem to have been the only problem here. Even when Charlie understood the questions he was being asked, his answers didn't always make sense. Did you feel like it was just a communication issue with him, or was there a cognitive impairment? So when... When you isolate someone from communication, you know, is it, I mean, what causes it? Mm -hmm. You know, if you take someone and they're raised by gorillas in the forest, is it because they act the way they do? Is it cognition or the way they were isolated? I mean, he was isolated from communication. Uh, I would say just guessing he probably second grade reading level. He just did not have the language skills. I mean, that I vividly remember him not having communication and, and language skills to communicate with someone other than his family. Fingerspelling provided some method of communication with Charlie, but even that was limited. Because in order to fingerspell successfully, you need to be able to read and write. And how much could he... You can, he might know the alphabet, but if he doesn't know how to read, spelling out the signs doesn't really doesn't help. Really help. No. Like you can spell out outside, but you might not know what those letters I mean, put together only, mean. The only way they really would have got this information that they wanted was to go to the scene and say, oh. act out what you saw. I mean, if they had videoed him at the scene, having him, okay, Charlie, let's go through this again. That's not how trials work, though. In most cases, witnesses can only give evidence by answering questions under oath on the witness stand. But this was not an effective way of communicating with Charlie Childers. He can answer some questions. He can answer some questions, some of the very literal questions, or from the very beginning, it looks like questions that he knew. He'd gone through. It seems like he had this, this plan, you know, these are the things you're going to tell. This is what happened in this order. That's just what they want you to say. On the witness stand, Charlie had been able to describe what had happened that night leading up to the shooting. I was just sitting there watching TV. I heard the sound. I turned around. I was scared. It was a gunshot in the bedroom. I didn't see what happened in the room because I was just sitting there. I stayed there in my seat just waiting, watching everybody. Wayne went in there. Then everybody else got up and went in there. 
This part of Charlie's testimony made sense. But the problems began as soon as Charlie was asked any questions about what had happened after this point in his story. Like when the prosecutor asked Charlie if he had seen someone named Daryl before or after the gunshot had gone off. Daryl went this way, Story was in the room, and I could hear the pop. And after that, but Story, I saw Story come through the room, walk through the room, saying hello to everybody and talking. But he's starting back at the start of the story. Though. I know. See? I mean, it's to me, after I read it at this point, it's like, okay, this is the story. I've rehearsed the story. I'm going to tell the story. I start here. I go through everything that I experienced. That's what they told me to do. So, okay, I've told it a couple of times. They didn't get it. Let me turn, Let me start again. It's like I could not communicate the question to him. When Charlie was asked a question, more often than not, he couldn't answer it. Instead, he just retold the entire story of what happened that night. And then later on, it started to get dark. We went home. Brian went to his parents' house and stayed. We went in and sat, and our friends talked about talking. We stayed for a while. He's starting over. After a while, sitting, watching TV, my brother, all of us talking. We started all over again. I saw one person walking past, and I walked and watched this person walk past the window. Was that person outside? Outside. Daryl was outside. Story was inside. Story, he walked by inside into the room. I was sitting there with all the people, friends, family, and so forth. Start over again. Ask him who Daryl is. In the transcript of Charlie's testimony, the name Daryl appears dozens of times. This is important because the prosecutor tells the jury that Charlie is talking about Lee, whose legal name is Daryl Lee Clark. But Lee has never gone by Daryl. Everyone just calls him Lee. And in fact, when Charlie was asked if he knew Daryl's name, Charlie answered no, he didn't. So why, in the transcript, does Charlie keep saying the name Daryl? And he does say Daryl, or he, well, he somehow identifies our... So I don't know if there was a name sign. So like right here, I say, Charlie, where was Daryl? I don't know if there was a name sign established to Daryl or if I'm single spelling Daryl each time. So he was identifying Daryl, but it could have been a number of different ways. A number of different ways. See, and then here, is Daryl in the courtroom today? I know I've seen Story, I've seen him. So obviously we were able to differentiate between Story and Daryl because now he's talking about Story. When Kane's attorney cross-examined Charlie, he asked Charlie why he kept saying the name Daryl. But Gola struggled to make Charlie understand the question. So where did you come up with the name Daryl? Yes, where? I did. I did tell Story and I put that down. I put down Story. No, not Daryl. Just the one, just the one story, that's all. One-time story, I put down story, I write down story, I told about story. See, I'm, I'm obviously frustrated at this point because I'm not using complete sentences. I'm probably matching what he's, what he's saying. And you didn't tell about any other person that you named, did you? No, I didn't. So where did Daryl come from? Nope. You don't know where you came up with the name Daryl? I don't know about Daryl. At times in his testimony, Charlie denied knowing anything about any Daryl. He insisted that he was only talking about Kane's story. But other times, Charlie does describe seeing a second boy named Daryl at the trailer that night. I told the boss man, I know about Story and Daryl, the two of them, what happened before. I know I saw it two times that Story shot Brian. You saw Story shoot Brian? No. First Story walked around. He said hello. So he's telling the story again. I watched him walk by. I was watching TV. My brother and I talking to the parents, the bowling parents. They were meeting and talking, and I heard something that made me jump. It scared me. A loud boom. Story came running out of the room. He walked past. I watched him. Like, what was going on? The other boy, I don't know. Did you see the other boy? Yeah, the other boy. Yeah, there was another boy. Do you remember his name? His wife is Miss, I don't know, 
I don't know, black boy, black hair. His wife? So there's another person there. There's no one with... His wife is Miss... I don't know. These boys are like 15, 16 years old. There's no wives. Just to state the obvious, Lee Clark was not married, he's not black, and he has brown hair. We don't know who Charlie could have been describing here. Like this... Reading this, it's hard. He does later, he says Daryl a lot, but I just don't think he actually identified Daryl Lee Clark. So you've been asking him repeatedly if he sees Daryl at the trailer. And now you're asking him if he sees Daryl here today. And he can't tell And the he difference. can't, and he could not shift to the present. Reading the transcript, you can feel the confusion and frustration from everyone in the courtroom. Especially when prosecutor Steve Cox was trying to get Charlie to identify Lee Clark. Steve Cox seems to have thought that the problem might be that Charlie was just looking in the wrong direction. He couldn't identify Lee because he hadn't looked over and seen where he was sitting. So he said to Gola, tell Charlie to look around the courtroom. The transcript shows that Gola had done her best to interpret Charlie's response to this instruction. He said, no, I didn't. I didn't look around. No, I will not look around. No, I didn't. You can tell you're getting frustrated, too. I mean, you know, (laughs) do you really want me to say exactly what he's saying? Because it makes no sense. Well, the prosecutor's getting frustrated, too. Like, this isn't going the way I thought it would go. All he needs to do is to say, yeah, I saw Daryl there, and this is not working. He's saying story again. No matter how many times Charlie was asked to identify Daryl, he couldn't do it. He kept saying Daryl wasn't there. Story, only story. So, as Lee Clark remembers, eventually the prosecutor came up with a new plan. In that courtroom, that district attorney Steve Cox, at the time that they were trying to get Charlie to identify me, he sit there and asked the judge, he said, Your Honor, I would like to ask permission at this time to step behind the fence counsel table and for Mr. Childers to tell me if it's uh, to stop behind the person he's seen that night. And he comes right behind the fence counsel table and walks right behind me. And he's standing right there, and he's like, is this the man you saw? And, and, and all of a sudden, it's like, oh, yeah, oh, this is the guy I seen. Oh, so he did get you in the end. Yeah, I mean, what is that? So, yeah, if you focus on just this one exchange from the transcript and ignore everything else that came before and after it, then, sure, it's accurate to say that Charlie Childers identified Lee Clark at trial. But Gola told us that if the prosecutor had actually wanted to find out if Charlie knew who Daryl Lee Clark was, this was not the way he should have gone about it. What they should have done is said, okay, Charlie, who is this? Give me this person's name. Charlie, who is this? Give me this person's name. I mean, they should have done everybody at the table. Do you know these people and what are their names? And he would have said yes, no, yes. What the prosecutor does next is he walks behind the defense bench. Uh So you got the two defense attorneys, you got the two defendants there. Mm -hmm. He walks up and grabs Daryl Lee Clark by the shoulders. Okay. And I guess you ask, is this Daryl? Okay. Is that the person you saw outside the... Let's see, Your Honor, let the record show that he's that he knows Daryl Clark. After we spoke to Gola Burton, Jacinda and I updated Kevin on how it had gone. Does she remember at the time thinking how absurd this was, that this was the eyewitness? And she was laughing, she read the transcript now, but like back then I think she was like, freaked out over her head and she she was early in her career and she didn't have the confidence to be like your honor we can't I cannot do this this is not a thing that can be we can't communicate with him she also remembers being told don't worry about it the conviction won't hinge on his testimony but he's the eyewitness placing him at the scene he's the only one who can place him at the scene so now she's probably like going back inside and having a drink yeah. <laughs> She says she's going to call her dad, who she says is more um, experienced translating than her with this kind of issue and see what he thinks of that transcript. We'd known since we first started working on this case that we needed to speak to Charlie Childers. But after talking to Gola Burton, we now knew how difficult communicating with Charlie was going to be. And it really is a shame that Charlie... 
there's a deaf community in Cave Spring. Like it's, he's really close to a place where he could have lots of resources and yet he's been isolated. Yeah, it's a little perplexing when you get right down to it, right? Like if yeah. he's gonna, if you're gonna be in sort of rural Georgia. This, this is where you wanna be. This is where you wanna be. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, host of The Daily Book Club, a daily podcast where I read wonderful old books one chapter at a time. Simple as that. Whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time, or just relax to a good book, listen to The Daily Book Club to get wrapped up or unwind during your day. We'll read classic stories like Pride and Prejudice, The Enchanted April, The Wind in the Willows, beautiful stories all told from start to finish. And you can even do a real book club. Tune into the Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to the Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day. So sit back, relax, and get lost in the Daily Book Club. Hey, do you have trouble sleeping? Then maybe you should check out the Sleepy Podcast. It's a show where I read old books in the public domain to help you get to sleep. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of classic stories like A Tale of Two Cities, Pride and Prejudice, Winnie the Pooh, stories that are great for adults and kids alike. For years now, Sleepy has helped millions of people catch some much-needed Z's, start their next day off fresh, and discover old books that they didn't know they loved. So, whether you have a tough time snoozing or you just like a good bedtime story, fluff up the cool side of your pillow and tune into Sleepy. Unless you're driving, then please don't listen to Sleepy. Find Sleepy on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes each week. Sweet dreams. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Gola put us in touch with her father, Mike Burton. He has decades of experience interpreting and teaching ASL as well as teaching ASL interpreters. Gola thought he might be able to help us make sense of Charlie's confusing testimony, and she turned out to be right about that. You taught Charlie Childers. I taught Charlie Childers. Mike Burton had been Charlie's high school teacher, and he's remained in contact with Charlie off and on in the years since, acting as an interpreter for him on a number of occasions. Did you find it hard to communicate with Charlie? Hmm? Were you able to communicate with Charlie, or was it Charlie's difficult? extremely difficult to communicate with. He left Georgia School for the Deaf in, uh, I'm thinking, 75, maybe 74, 75. His mother took him to Silver Creek, and he never saw another deaf person. He actually looked me up. He wanted somebody to take him to churches. Guy Tom, another deaf guy, took him to church, and the mother stopped that. She did not want him interacting with any of the deaf people. So it's like, you know, you can learn to ride a bicycle and you can keep that skill, but that ain't the same. And that's sort of the way I see it with Charlie. He never was a great signer, but over time, it really deteriorated. When we met Mike Burton, we'd been surprised to find out that he actually knew Charlie Childers. And we were even more surprised to find out that he'd once interpreted for Charlie in connection with the Brian Bowling case. 
So we're down in Booger Holler <laughs> with Mike Burton, who is the father of Golda Burton, the interpreter who was used at the trial of uh, Lee and Kane, the defense in this case. And he was just telling us that he remembers at some point interpreting for Charlie Childers. Tell me what you remember about that. Well, I'll be honest with you, it was a while back and I'm getting a little fuzzy. I do remember talk about the trailer. I do remember Charlie talking about seeing this guy walk by the window. I do remember him talking about the plywood over the window. That's what I remember. There's no record of this interview in the files we've been able to obtain. So it's not entirely clear what Mike Burton is remembering. He didn't know if he'd been brought in by the DA or by a public defender or what. He just remembers that, at some point, he had interpreted for Charlie when he was interviewed about Brian's death. You know, the possibility, I don't think this is right, but it's possible. You know, his mother was so controlling and so involved. It's possible she asked me to interpret for somebody. I mean, that's possible. She did that all the time, you know. And, you know, I'd always try to help Charlie out. So Charlie was in trouble a lot over the years, you know, and with his neighbors and people around. Charlie is difficult to communicate with, but Mike Burton has known him for more than 40 years. And if there's anyone in Floyd County who could help us speak with Charlie, it was Mike. He volunteered to go with us when we went to interview Charlie. All right, well, should we head over to the Silver Creek Mini Mart? All right, we'll just... We'll just meet you over there. All righty. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. On our way back to Silver Creek, Susan, Dan, and I talked about what we just learned from Mike Burton. All right, so we're on the way to the Silver Creek Mini Mart, um, taking the back roads because the bridge is out in Booger Holler. And I am really curious about what Mike Burton told us about his memory of some I think the first word he used was a deposition, which wouldn't be right, but some kind of like court-connected proceeding that was, what makes the most sense to me, just guessing, is that the DA asked him in because the DA needed to hear from Charlie. So basically what he said is that he was asked to come interpret for Charlie, and this was before the trial. We think. It sounds pretty sure. He thought it was before the trial. But he recalled Charlie saying there are people in the house and there was plywood on a window and he saw someone else outside. According to Dallas Battle, Charlie told him that on the night Brian had been shot, he'd seen someone outside of the living room window. But the window with plywood over it isn't the living room window. That's the window in Brian's bedroom. I don't think Charlie was saying he saw someone through a window. I think he's saying the boys went in and out through the window. That's what I think he's saying, too. Boy. Boys would go in and out window. Boys walk in and out through window. Go to store. The boys would go in and out of the window and then walk to the store, the mini mart. Mm -hmm. That's the window. That's why why he couldn't figure out the inside outside, because there's both. He sees boys going in through the window and out through the window. So he... Charlie's confusion isn't that he can't tell inside-outside apart. It's that he's like, well, obviously it's both. How do you focus on inside and outside when you're describing someone going from in and out? Charlie could not have seen Brian's bedroom window on the night Brian was shot. He was in the bowling's living room, facing towards the window that overlooked their front yard. There is no possibility that he observed anything at Brian's bedroom window that night. But it's very possible, likely even, that on previous occasions, Charlie had seen boys going in and out of Brian's bedroom window. I get the sense too that Charlie struggles to convey concepts in time. And that or really to Charlie's, orient where, yeah. where and when, when things take place. I mean, basically Charlie was just saying the same thing that Jamie said, mm-hmm. which was people would, yeah, people would always go in and out because that's just like, you know, how they got in to hang out of the room. They were just like, ah, just hopping through the window. So he gives answers that are true for a certain subsets of time, but he doesn't orient his answers and doesn't understand the questions are focused on certain time periods either. Right.
To find out if this could really be what happened, we needed to hear from Charlie himself. And thanks to Mike Burton, it seemed like that was going to be possible. But for that to happen, we'd have to find Charlie first. Well, this is frustrating. Where's Charlie? We tried every address in Silver Creek that Charlie had ever been associated with. He wasn't anywhere we could find. While trying to figure out what to do, I stopped into the Silver Creek Mini Mart to get some snacks and asked someone at the store if they happened to know where I could find Charlie. They didn't, but they pointed across a field outside the Mini Mart. That guy over there might know, I was told. I'm sorry to bother you. We're looking for a guy named Charlie Childers. And someone at the store told us you might know where he is. <laughs> The man had in fact known Charlie and Wayne, but he wasn't able to tell me where I could find them. So, something happened. I don't know. They're largely homeless now. He knows them pretty well, and he said like as of like a week ago, they were staying at this house right up the road here. But he also said that they were homeless, and I guess they lost the house, and now they're just staying Their where they- Their mom died. Yeah, and she so. was, she controlled everything. While in Floyd County, we'd heard a few stories about Wayne and Charlie's mother, Patty Childers. And we'd come to learn that she had a personal interest in this case. Shortly after trial, Brian's mother, Deborah Bowling, had written a letter to the Rome News Tribune. The letter was lengthy and covered a variety of topics, but it closed by thanking a few people by name for their help in securing Kane's and Lee's conviction. The following week, the paper ran another letter. This time under the heading, Friend Offers Views in Brian Bowling Case. It was signed by Wayne Childers. I am a citizen of Floyd County, and I would like to respond to the letter in the February 19 paper. My brother and I testified for the Bowling family in court but our names weren't mentioned even once in this letter as a thank you. What everyone doesn't know is that Brian Bowling had come to me numerous times about redacted. I responded by saying, this is a family matter and that I wouldn't get involved. As far as friends are concerned, they want you when they need you, but when you need them, they slap you in the face. Brian will be truly missed by myself and my family. He was a good kid and didn't deserve to die but I believe he will be better off and get the attention he needed from his father in heaven. The redaction was done by the Rome News Tribune. The editor decided that whatever the family matter was, it should be removed before the letter ran to the paper. But when I stumbled across this letter in the newspaper's archives, its harsh tones stood out to me. What could have possibly motivated Wayne to write a public letter declaring that Brian was better off dead because God would give him more attention than his family did? We asked Brian's uncle if he'd known what this letter was about. Yeah, I know exactly what that is. It's okay. The reason for it is the Childers, that's Wayne and Charlie, their mom and dad was Patty and James. Deborah had mentioned all these people, you know, think this person, this person, this person, and she didn't think the Childers. So Patty Childers was calling, cussing, raising all kind of came calls. We didn't think them. So that's what so that's, that's what that's why about. they wrote a letter. That is correct. Okay. That's what they're upset about. <laughs> yep, that's it. Also, he, but I w I've been told several times now that Wayne could not read or write. Correct. So who do you think wrote that letter? Patty. Okay. Yeah, the mom. And that's what it was. She was upset because she didn't call them by name to thank them in the newspaper. When we spoke to Amanda and Kenneth, they remembered this letter as well. And what the consensus seems to be is that Patty wrote it. Mm -hmm. That would be about right. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that makes sense to you that Patty would have written that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah because she just, she would get mad about certain things like that, you know. And, and because their names wasn't mentioned. That's, the reason why their names wasn't mentioned is because they didn't want their names mentioned. Wayne and Charlie and, and Patty didn't want their name mentioned, you know, because they, yeah, were, they so were so nervous. scared. They were scared. Yeah. They he thought me. Lee, I guess, Lee was going to come and kill him. Yeah, see, yeah. Charlie was scared to death. Yeah. I mean, absolutely, really wanted to be put on a, 
well, he called that for, you know, to witness, witness protection. protection, you know. Really? Yeah, I mean, he was scared to death. Amanda and Kenneth remember that Charlie had been nervous about his role in this case, and they think now that it may have been Lee Clark that he'd been worried about. But Lee had been arrested before Charlie was ever interviewed, and he's been behind bars ever since. And from Charlie's trial testimony, it's far from clear that he has any idea who Lee Clark even is. So was Charlie really scared of Lee? Or could there have been something else that he'd been afraid of? With Mike Burton's help, we'd be able to ask Charlie that ourselves. And while we hadn't found him yet, we knew now at least that he was still somewhere in Floyd County. Next week on Proof. They put me on trial with Kane because they know if they tried me separate, they was never put to get a guilty verdict. They used Kane's circumstance to convict me. What do you think was the most compelling evidence against them in your mind? Josh's testimony. You think if he hadn't taken the stand? I think they would have got off the hook. Let me tell you something, I ain't got no money. If I had money back then, Bobby Lee Cook, well-known attorney, well-known around here. If I'd have had fifty or sixty thousand dollars, he probably would never went to prison. Lee wouldn't have. You've been listening to Proof, a podcast by Red Marble Media. We'll be back next Monday for episode 10. Send us your questions at proofcrimepod at gmail.com. We'll respond during our bonus episodes, Proof Sidebar, on Thursdays. Kevin Fitzpatrick is our executive producer. Our logo was designed by Drew Hosuski. And our theme music is by Ramiro Marquez. Audio production for this episode is by George Panos and Michael Yulatowski. Production assistance provided by Jude Slava. Our social media manager is Skylar Park. Thank you to our sponsors for making it possible for us to come back week after week. Follow us everywhere with the handle at ProofCrimePod and on our website, ProofCrimePod.com. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.